We started a series last week on God's unlikely ways. Uh, And the purpose behind this series is to recalibrate our own thinking and our own expectations for how God works in this world. Because the world that we live in is big into the spectacular, big into the big, and big into the famous and the well-known and the obvious. But when we read our Bibles, we find that God's way of working is very, very different. Last week, we started the series off with the unlikely power of weakness. And we come this morning to the unlikely place of smallness. The unlikely place of smallness. We live in a world where big is beautiful, where size matters, where there's supermarkets and hypermarkets and global, globalization and monster sales and monster trucks and monster cars. And it's easy to be sucked in as a church to think that big is better. We could think that if we could get all the Christians in Donegal together and have a massive evangelistic outreach, that would be the way to go. Or if we could have a significant influence in the media and in television, we could reach more people. Or we could think that if we were bigger as a church, we would be more attractive. Or we could do more evangelism. Um, Or we could feel sorry for ourselves, perhaps as individuals, uh, or as Christians in a country where there are few people who pay any heed to God, where Christian values are scorned. It could be that, for some of us, that you don't see many Christians from one end of the week to the next. Or our young people, uh, many of your friends don't bother with church at all. And they'll look uh, with ridicule on you coming along to church on a Sabbath morning. Look at the thousands of people who go to rugby matches, to GA matches, football matches, and, and here you are, this little group of people. Or in your school you may be one of very few Christians. Or the only Christian in your course at college. And smallness can be hard. And so because the world thinks big is brilliant, and because smallness is often hard, we want to look and be encouraged this morning at thinking of God's unlikely ways. Because he's a God who's full of surprises. And he works in this world in a way that's full of surprises. A few weeks ago we looked at Revelation 7. And we saw that there will be a multitude that no man can number gathered around the throne. And we believe by faith that we, if we put our trust in Jesus, are part of that vast, vast congregation. But we live here. And we live in this world where things are a bit smaller than a numberless multitude. And so we need to see how God works. For we live by faith and not by sight. We believe what Revelation 7 says by faith. And we don't let, we're not to let the smallness of things discourage us. So let's open our eyes to see what God's word says about how God works. Today we're thinking about the unlikely place of smallness. And we're going to see three things. First of all, we've got the place of smallness. Second, we're going to have the power of smallness. And thirdly, we're going to have the purpose of smallness. So first of all, the 
place of smallness. You know, this isn't uh, meant to be a feel-good sermon where, you know, we talk about small things and we tell an impressive story about the tale of Mrs. Tiggy Winkle who saves a whole nation, you know, and then we all feel good. Um, that's not what this is about because this isn't sort of a, a one-off type event in God's Word. Whenever we read God's Word, we find that this is the upside-down way that God works. God doesn't work according to our ways. His ways are not like our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so as we look through Scripture, we see stories. We see Joseph, who's the youngest of the brothers. There's a younger one, Benjamin, but as the story's getting going, Joseph's the the, the youngest of those brothers. And it's Joseph, the small one, that God uses. Whenever God chooses Israel as a nation, he says to them in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 and 7, The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his treasured possession. He did not set his affection on you because you were more numerous than the other peoples, for you were the fewest. There he's doing it again. Gideon. You saw him doing it deliberately last week. Where God, what did Gideon had 20,000 troops and God said, send home all the ones that are afraid. And then he said, send, send home the ones that drink the water in this particular way. And there's nothing different about the way they drown, nothing special about the way one said drank the water and the other said didn't. It was just, which is going to be the smallest group? And God said, I'm going to give you a victory with a tiny group of people. He said, God who delights to use the small. Jonathan, in 1 Samuel 7, or 14, we'll come to 17 in a minute, in 1 Samuel 14, takes his armor bearer with him to attack a whole division of Philistine soldiers, and he says, Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. He's got the pattern. He's got the pattern. In chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, David goes to the battlefield where this giant of a man, Goliath, is taunting the Israelite army. David's brothers scorn him. Saul's armor dwarfs him. Goliath towers over him and ridicules him. And God uses him. See? God using the small. And then you've got Elijah, the lone prophet of God against 400 prophets of Baal. And what does he see? What do we see? God using the one to triumph over the many. And then in Elijah's life as well, there, there's a time of famine and a widow has a small amount of oil and flour. And Elijah says to her, could you make me a cake to eat? For I'm hungry. And she says, well, this is all I've left. I was going to make a meal for my son and myself and then lie down and die. He says, well, watch what God does. God will provide for you. Make me a cake first. And she makes him a meal. And the bag of flour And the jar of oil, don't run out for the duration of the famine. God using the small again. In Elisha's time, another widow's jar of oil. 
doesn't run out, but keeps going as God multiplies to clear her debts. We have it in the New Testament, in Jesus' teaching and in Jesus' miracles of the feeding of the 5,000. And John, all the Gospels tell the story. But John highlights the fact that it was a small boy's small lunch with small rolls in it, with small fish that were used to feed a crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children, 20,000. Jesus hears the sound of two tiny copper coins tinkling into the collection plate at the temple. Having heard the the rattle and roar of, of rich men tipping in their bags of coins, and Jesus hears the little clink of two copper coins, and he says, the widow's might is worth more than all they've given. He picks out the small thing. He tells a parable about the mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in a field, though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He tells him another parable about yeast and how it gets in and impacts a whole massive batch of dough. Most of all, God comes into the world. Does he come in to save mankind as a general? Does he come in as a king? Comes as a baby. Tiny little child in a a backwater country, in a small place, in a small town, as a small child. And it's not just events. We see it in verses Passages where God specifically sets it out. Zechariah 4.10 We read, Who dares despise the day of small things? Earlier in verse 6, God had told Zechariah, Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. You see, the place of smallness is where God's power then works. 1 Corinthians 1.26, Paul puts it this way. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not, that are nothing, to nullify the things that are. Smallness. Not bigness. Smallness has a big place in God's plan. So don't let smallness fool you. Don't think we need to get on the bandwagon of the way the world does stuff because then we'll really make an impact. That's not what we see. And don't let smallness discourage you. The place of smallness. Secondly, the power of smallness. The power of smallness. Really, I should call it the power of God in smallness. Because it's not the power of smallness at all. Smallness is just small. It's not that small is better It's not the smallness that's the key. It's God who's the key. So it's the power of God in smallness. And we see it, and I've picked this passage in 2 Kings 5 to illustrate it. We can go to lots of places. We could have gone to the feeding of the 5,000. And this is like the Old Testament equivalent of the feeding of the 5,000. Or we could have gone to David and Goliath, but, but David goes on and becomes somebody really famous and goes on and becomes a great king. But this little girl here and the little boy in, in John 5 and John 6, 
don't become, we don't hear anything more about them. They remain small, but they have a huge impact. So let's take this little girl. This passage is full of great people. There's two great kings. There's a great general. And there's a great prophet. But the spark that sets the whole thing ablaze is a little girl. Small and anonymous. We don't even know her name. And using her we see the the startling power uh, of, of God in the smallness. In the contrast against the greatness of the people. Uh, we've looked at this passage before and we've focused on God's grace to Naaman. Uh, we're going to, in a sense, set that aside this morning and just focus for a moment or two on this little girl. Verse 2 of Second Kings chapter 5 conceals an ocean of misery. Now bands from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel. It could be translated a little girl. A little girl. How had it been? Was it that one day she simply didn't come home? Her parents, her brothers, her sisters went out and searched up and down, knocking on the neighbors' doors until every house been covered. Out the next day, looking in every field and hedge and ditch, and that gut-wrenching feeling as they returned home and tried to sleep, and the house just seemed empty. And far off in Damascus, a little girl begins to learn a new way of life, a new language, a new culture. Find her way around a new home. Maybe she even was given a new name. We're not even told a name. She's so small, she's anonymous. And then we've Naaman, commander of the army of Syria. He's the right-hand man of the king. We're told he was a great man in the sight of his master. And highly regarded. And Naaman is so great that his king thinks that he's great. He had it all. Prestige, honor, success and power. He was a valiant soldier. And he's well known. He's a big name. A big shot. And then we read in verse 1. But he had leprosy. There may have been victory parades. The king may have ridden by his side. But he was a leper. People shied away from him. Maybe he couldn't go close to his own children. Maybe he couldn't enjoy his wife caressing his face, coming close to him. Maybe we have a sense of, well, that'll serve him, right? For all the misery he's inflicted on others. God is going to work here. And how is it he's going to work here? I love this passage because there's so much grace in it. Naaman is going to be healed. He doesn't deserve it. He's a proud man. He's arrogant. But God is going to heal him. And he's not just going to heal him physically. He's going to heal him spiritually. Naaman is going to be redeemed. Naaman is going to be in heaven. Naaman is a worshipper of the, the true God. And what is the catalyst for that? Verse 3, little girl, she said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, and he would cure him of his leprosy. <laughs> what grace! You know, perhaps it would have been me 
uh, and I had been kidnapped and was being asked to serve, I might have uh, smiled to myself every time I saw Naaman scratching at himself or every time I saw the disfigurement the leprosy had caused. But no, not this little girl. Her heart has a tenderness. She's anonymous. She's far from home. She's out of her depth. She's, she's little. But God has worked grace into her life. And that's a huge thing. Grace is a colossal thing. And it's impact. Jesus compares the gospel to yeast. Yeast getting in and beginning to work its way through a huge batch of dough. It works through this little girl's life. It leaches out of her life into the life of her mistress. And she says to her mistress, maybe the mistress was saying, another doctor we've tried, another remedy we've tried and it's failed. If there was anything that could be done for my husband, we would pay a fortune. And the little girl goes, oh, that he could go to Samaria. It's only ten words in Hebrew. But they are great, grace-filled words. Within them, one writer says, are compressed ten thousand nouns of faith and verbs of hope, a whole language of redemption, of freedom from pain and shame. Compressed into ten words. And this mighty man, this general, takes the word of a little girl. And he believes them. And he goes to the king. And you've got a king and a general. And they're having a conversation about the words of a little girl. They're going to change the course of this man's life and his eternal destiny. And off he goes. And yes, there's confusion at first. And there's pride at second. And he nearly blows it. But God has in place some more anonymous people. Some more little people, servants, who plead with Naaman to follow the prophet's instruction. And you see, in a sense, God again is emphasizing the littleness, the smallness. A servant goes out to Naaman, not the great prophet. And he's to bathe in the local river, not the great rivers of Syria. And his own small people, his servants, plead with him. The power isn't in human greatness. It's not in the kings, but it's in God. And God underlines it here by using the small people, the unknown people. And then we read, His flesh was restored like that of a young boy or a little child. It's virtually the same phrase in Hebrew. It's like the feminine version of the phrase when she's described as a little girl. His flesh is described as being like that of a young boy. Fresh, made new. The hero is God, but who does he use? Little servant girl, in a hard place, used by God to do something great. And here we are talking about it years later. The story that she starts is a great illustration of grace. How many people have come to faith through this story? What will heaven be like as this little girl finds out what her ten words did? God In God's hands, smallness is irrelevant. In God's hands, the smallness of Christianity in Ireland is irrelevant. In God's hands, the smallness of this fellowship is irrelevant. In God's hands, the smallness of your abilities, my abilities, is irrelevant. 
in God's hands, the smallness of your sense of influence is irrelevant. doesn't matter. It's in the hands of a great God. So be encouraged. Maybe you feel small. Or maybe you're in a hard place like this little girl was. Maybe you feel amidst the big issues that are going on, you're only a small wheel and what can you do? See, the power of God is not limited or shaped by our smallness. I was just As I was going over this in the study this morning, I remembered uh, the great African theologian, one of the greatest thinkers uh, and philosophers, Augustine, and he became a Christian. And he had been chasing meaning and pleasure and, and uh, all sorts of things. And he had been following a particular philosophy in life and was really into it. And it wasn't giving him answers. And you would ask, how did this man so immersed in pagan philosophy and in immorality and pleasure-seeking become one of the greatest Christian thinkers ever? What sort of brain did it take to convert this man? There's a child in a garden playing a game, chanting a phrase, Tole lege. don't even know if the child knew what it meant. It means take and read. Justin took a Bible that was sitting there and opened it and read it. And the verse that he read struck him to the heart and he was converted. What did it take, what did it take to convert this great intellect? A child in two words. Isn't it amazing? A small thing in the hand of a great God is far more powerful than we realize. And we need to take that and be encouraged by it. And then thirdly, we, we, we see the purpose of God in smallness. The purpose of God in smallness. Given that this is how God works so often, we shouldn't be surprised when we see things being small. Or we have a sense of, this is too big for me. Or we, we have a sense of being overwhelmed by the world around us. That's how God delights to work. And he does that for a couple of reasons. I just want to mention these briefly. One is to develop humble dependence. To develop humble dependence. It's not that small is beautiful. Small is still sinful. Small is still weak. But our great problem is that we forget we're small. And we think we're great. And we become fixated on our own ability to do things. We like to be independent. That's how Adam and Eve got us into the whole mess in the first place. I'll do it my way. And we, we are small and we're made of dust and we forget that. And God working through smallness helps us remember that. You see, there's a time in Israel's history where David forgot that he was small. He forgot that God didn't need his armies. He forgot that God had won against Goliath with just David the shepherd boy. And David started to count his men, his army. And he started to number them to, to, to see how powerful he was. He forgot that he was small. And God brought judgment and punishment on David for that. Because it's not about us and our strength. It's about us depending on the God who's strong. In Deuteronomy 8, God says in verse 11 and then down through to 17, Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. 
He says, when you come into this country and you're eating its nice food and you're in these nice houses and you're all satisfied, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. Oh, we need to remember that we are weak, that we are dependent. Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. And it's not about my abilities. It's not about your abilities. And when we feel small, what we need to do at that moment is to go to God and say, I'm small and you're big. Will you come and work? In my home, my family, come and work in our community, come and work through our small church. We should be much on our knees. It breeds dependence in us. And God delights to use small people aware of their frailties. That way we don't get too full of ourselves and think that we can stand on our own two feet. And then secondly, it brings God glory. It keeps us dependent and it brings God the glory. We are by nature glory stealers. We uh, we either want to hog the limelight or if we're not temperamentally inclined to hog the limelight, we'll, we'll just make sure the limelight isn't being shone on other people. Least of all on God. And God is a magnificent God. And His wisdom knows no bounds. And His power is limitless. But how is that best seen? Is that best seen by having people of glorious abilities wiring the crowd with their wonderful rhetoric and their doing of miracles? Is that how God's greatness is seen? Consider the, the wisdom and skill of a surgeon. And he performs this intricate piece of surgery in the most high-tech, up-to-date operating theatre in the world. And then see the same man out in a jungle a clinic. And he's performing the same surgery, but the generator keeps going on the blink. And the power goes off and the lights flicker and, and go off for time. And through it all, he holds his hands steady, performs the same delicate surgery. The sweat is lashing off him. The instruments are inferior. And he pulls it off. Now which shows his genius best? Isn't it working with the small and the weak instruments and the poor circumstances? We get to see his magnificence. And it's not that God needs to show off. It's that we need to see that he is spectacular. Because we think we're spectacular and we forget how glorious he is. And so what better way to show the world that he's glorious than to triumph over a giant of a man with a shepherd boy? What better way to show the world that he's glorious than to triumph over death by an ugly cross, by a small, shameful thing? What better way to show the world, to, to outlive the Roman Empire with a message spread by a bunch of unschooled fishermen. Christianity spreads all over the world. Where's the Roman Empire today? It's gone. Where's all the learning of the Greeks and their great philosophy? Gone. Where's Christianity? It's here. Isn't God glorious? What better way to show his glory than to transform a nation by many small churches, to reach a city and a county by anonymous people, not the big, the powerful, the influential. John Benton 
writes, God is the God who derives most glory from the situations that other people would have written off. Not great. You look at something, not a hope. God says, I let, let me go there. God is the God who works in the small and the unlikely. And isn't that what he did in us? People that others would have written off. The reality, I suppose, is that Jesus has done the big thing. He's gone to the cross and done it all. There aren't big things for us to do. The biggest thing has been done. And we just need to keep on, as it were, being small people, putting ourselves in God's hands and expecting him to do big things through us in the lives of others. Let me finish with two sets of applications. First of all, be challenged. Be challenged. Be challenged. If you're here this morning and you haven't yet put your trust in Christ, it may be that you need to be made small. It may be that you haven't started the Christian life because you haven't realized how small you are. You're still trying to be big, big enough to cope with life, big enough to run life your way. Well, the door of heaven is, somebody said, three foot tall. You can only go in on your knees. We have to make ourselves small and come to God and say, I'm poor and needy. I can't rescue myself. I'm, I can't do it. I'm too small. Will you do it for me? And then he'll lift you up and place you higher than you have ever or could ever imagine. There's a challenge to those of us who are Christians. We need to be challenged in our thinking. We need to be challenged in our thinking about the church. So we don't think we need to compete with the world. It doesn't need to be big and great. God uses us. We might seem small and insignificant, but that's what God delights to use. And here's the challenge. The challenge for our own thinking. The challenge for our own doing. Um, and our own attitude. Uh, will we continue to do the things that seem small? And will we, we continue to live for God where he's placed us? Remembering that God can use it to do great things. Will we continue? Um, so here's a challenge for our own attitude. Um, we have no excuse anymore in thinking, well, I can only do insignificant things. So what? So what? That's got nothing uh, to do with it. So let's be challenged to keep on serving God and not to think for a moment that, well, this doesn't make any difference. We have no idea what difference it might make. So be challenged to expect from small beginnings. And then secondly, by way of application, be encouraged. Be encouraged. Be encouraged as a church. The church in Ireland may be small, but so what? Be encouraged as individuals. You may feel small in your work or in your family. You may feel that you're just one. So what? Be asking him to use you. Be encouraged if you feel small against your circumstances. Look to him to be big. 
And you will find that he'll do great things. Be encouraged in what you are doing. It may seem small, but remember what ten words started. Chad Bird wrote a book, Your God is Too Glorious, which is what sparked off this sermon series, writes, Nothing is too small for him to notice. Nothing too unimportant for him to photograph and frame in the hallways of his memory. We are his children. Do the small things. Embrace smallness as the counterintuitive way of doing big things. You may feel you can only make a small contribution. Well, bring your five rules to the tea party and picnic of 20,000 people. See what Jesus does with it. Step up, in a sense, with our smallness. I'll finish with one more illustration. Charles Spurgeon, that great preacher of the 1800s, converted, used by God for the conversion of thousands of people. He was on his way to church when a blizzard prevented him from going any further. And he didn't go to the church he was going to. He went into another little church. And the minister hadn't been able to make it to that church. And so he says a poor man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. And Spurgeon says he didn't even pronounce the words correctly. But that didn't matter. And then he says he managed to spin it out for only ten minutes, this sermon. And then he was at the end of his tether. He had said all that he could say. And then he looked at Spurgeon, this young fellow, sitting under the gallery, and he said, Young man, you look miserable. And you will always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now this moment, you will be saved. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. That was the sermon. And Spurgeon was converted. A man, an anonymous man, with about ten minutes of saying the same thing over and over again. It's a small sermon. And God used it in a colossal way. We just don't know. And that's why God says, Do not despise the day of small things. Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, declares the Lord Almighty. So let's go out into the world this week, this month, this year, this life. And just keep living for God. And the things we do might seem small to us. But are they small in God's hands? Certainly not. Let's stand as we come to God in prayer. O Lord God, we marvel at your back-to-front ways. And we see it throughout Scripture. We see it throughout history. And Lord, we, we see that Jesus didn't come and gather together the great communicators. He didn't come and gather together the philosophers. He didn't come in uh, 2020 when there would be worldwide television coverage and full internet coverage, live streaming of all his miracles. He came at a time when it was all small, to a small backwater nation, born into a small family in a small village, 
And they lived a small life, as it were. And you have done something universe-shaping and shaking through that. And so, O Lord God, help us not to buy into the myth of the magnificent and the myth of the spectacular as if that's the only way that things get done in this world. Help us to live our lives living for Jesus, knowing that nothing done for Jesus is small and that nothing small in Jesus' hands remains small. And help us to keep doing what may seem ordinary and to keep using what may seem to us like limited abilities and limited opportunities. Help us to live for you, knowing that your ways are not our ways and your ways are bigger than our ways and that you Keep us dependent on you so that your glory is seen and displayed. Lord, we thank you for this. And we pray that you would help us to keep, uh, to keep encouraged and to keep uh, living for you uh, with all that you've given to us. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.